Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin, the podcast is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out all the eclectic and fascinating podcasts they have to offer. That's OsirisPod.com. Today's guest is one I've been hoping to have on the program for some time now, as I'm a fan of his work across multiple mediums, him being one of my favorite music writers and podcasters. I'm speaking of the acclaimed rock critic, Stephen Hyden. Stephen is the host of the podcast Celebration Rock, where he talks with rock stars and the country's biggest music writers about what's happening in rock. He also hosts the podcast Rivals, about the most fascinating feuds in music history. And he's one of the hosts of 36 from the Vault, an excellent Grateful Dead podcast. He is also the author of a few tremendous books about rock and roll, including Your Favorite Band is Killing Me on Rivalries in Pop Music History and Twilight of the Gods on the History of Classic Rock. That book is fantastic. He is a critic for Uproxx and previously served as a staff writer at Grantland and an editor at the AV Club. In just a few weeks, Stephen is releasing his latest book entitled This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A and the Beginning of the 21st Century. I've had the pleasure of reading it, and it is outstanding. As you might have already sorted, This Isn't Happening is a deep dive into one of the most important rock bands on the planet, Radiohead, and particularly into the song's history legacy and mystique of their 2000 release, Kid A. This Isn't Happening outlines the album's pervasive influence and impact on culture. Deploying a mix of criticism, journalism, and personal memoir, Haydn skillfully revisits the enigmatic, alluring LP and investigates the many ways in which Kid A shaped and foreshadowed our world. As Haydn puts it, This Isn't Happening is a detective story, in this case with an album that continually grows in lore and intrigue. In this episode, Stephen and I talk about what makes Kid A so special and different than anything Radiohead had released prior. We discuss multiple meltdowns by lead singer of Radiohead, Tom York, that directly contributed to the sound of Kid A. We explore the unique time period that Kid A was birthed into the world, where the internet was a far different place than it is today, and there was a feeling of uncertainty in the air that can dramatically be heard on the album. We talk about the struggles the band had in bringing the album to life, the unique relationship between Kid A and Radiohead's first hit single, Creep, and a whole lot more. All in all, we celebrate an album that is truly worthy of, and demanding of, the sort of thorough examination Stephen gives it in his book. Before we really dig in, I just want to express some gratitude and say thank you to a fellow Osiris Media podcaster, Brian Brickman, who linked Stephen and I for this interview. Brian, along with his co-host, David Goldstein, Helm the Beyond the Pond podcast, an outstanding music-centric pod where two massive music fans use the music of Fish to introduce you to new and interesting music. While the music of Fish lies at the heart of Beyond the Pond, it cannot be looked at as simply a Fish podcast. As so often, the music of Fish is just used as a springboard to talk about bounteous other bands and across multiple genres. It's a great podcast, and it's a celebration of music in general and a passionate one at that. Check out that podcast, check out Stephen's podcast, and check out all the other podcasts at the Osiris Media Group. And of course, check out This Isn't Happening. Links to pre-order the book are in the show notes. It's such an engrossing and fun read. And now let's get into it. Here is my interview with Stephen Hyden. 
love this book. It's uh, it's honestly, it's been a wild ride for me reading it. I made it kind of a full interactive experience. I was stopped to like revisit the um, MTV Beach House uh, performance. <laughs> anyone can play guitar. So fun to look at that. I you know stopped and watched the um, Social Network trailer. Um, you know, I even stopped. I was listening to albums throughout, and even uh, you know, not just Radiohead albums. You know, I, I, I dug into. Um, Elvis Costello's uh, Blood and Chocolate, and I even, I went this far, I even played uh, Two Love Waits as I read the last uh, couple pages, so I went all in, but... Uh, oh, nice, uh, but, nice. Uh, it's a great book, and I'm glad you're here to talk about it, so thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it's great. The, um, uh, the book opens um, with Tom. He's, uh, it's two, 2019. He's on Stephen Colbert. Um, it's amazing how you describe Tom's appearance there as a, a younger, more agitated Willie Nelson. I appreciated that. Um, but on the show, uh, Colbert turns to Tom and he says, how does it feel to be right? Which is pretty profound considering everything. Why did you choose to start the book with that moment right there? Um, I think I wanted to start in the present tense um, just to connect the album to now um you know there's this running theme in the book of you know spending a lot of time obviously in 1999 and 2000 when they were making the record but also talking about kid a before the album came out and afterward you know because i think you know one of the ways that we talk about history is um like when we talk about radiohead now it's like kid a exists when Pablo Honey came out, you know, and it also exists now, you know, and it, yep. it means something different in every era that it exists in. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it was just to underline the idea that, you know, this wasn't just an album that came out in 2000, that this is something that we live with now and it's connected uh, to our world, even in, in really strange ways. Like when he was on Colbert, uh, Tom York was on Colbert and he walks out the band plays this very loungy version of the national anthem, yeah. you know, which is <laughs> kind of a funny thing. And it, it just sort of spoke to me about how this um, really dark dystopian in, in many ways, cutting edge record in 2000, you know, it becomes Muzak essentially, you know, in the future. And I, I mean, hopefully this doesn't sound too highfalutin, but I think it, it says something about how, like, when you're living in a dystopia, it doesn't seem like a dystopia. It just seems like regular Normal. life. It's life, like yeah. there's something there's something sort of mundane about it. And I mean, it's funny talking about this now because, like, when I wrote the book, um, obviously there was no pandemic. Yep. You know, there wasn't all the crazy things that we're experiencing in 2020. So, um, you know, like 2019 now seems like really nice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like a really kind of and glorious it period. It in wasn't when you were in that moment. And I feel like people are no. forgetting that. We're re redefining things as we, we move forward. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible to think like when you, you know, if you, if you bought Kid A uh, in October of 2000 to think about like, what's the future going to be like in 20 years? And, you know, like, did we imagine that everyone would, would be wearing face masks when they went outside? I mean, I don't know. I, that almost seemed like, oh, that seems like too science fiction. You know, like you, you even I mean, it's and I love how you did divide that up into three parts because, you know, give you the backstory leading up to it. You know what was going on around the time and the crafting of it and then just kind of looking back in hindsight and everything that happened to Radiohead since. But. You did, um, you know, the the beginning, the 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 world that K 
Kid A was born into was, you know, I guess it's wild to think about now because I don't know many people that wouldn't think the year they're living in now is the craziest and the most intense. But when it came out, that was a wild, wild time. It was born into a world, you know, right around the 2000 election that you, you talk about all this, the Iraq war, the uncertainties with, um, you know, just coming into the new millennium and, and just technology. It was it was a wild time. And I think that did kind of shape how we felt about and uh, heard Kid A at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that attracted me to writing about this album was that the album itself, I think, is a is a great album. And there's a lot to dig into just musically, but also talking about Kid A, it's like a portal to talking about so many different things you yeah. know it, it it is really one of those sort of touchstone works of art that has so much rich subtext to it and um i think one of the like early ideas i had when i was thinking about this album was thinking about it in terms of like this is the overture for the 21st century you know like you know thinking about how like like when this album dropped again in, in october of 2000 I feel like the 21st century hadn't really started yet. You know, you mentioned the 2000 election, the, the Bush v. Gore election that of course went down the month after this album came out yep. about, you know, a year or so after this album comes, comes out, you have nine 11 and then you have, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, all this, this crazy stuff. Um, and you know, I, I'm not going to say this album predicted it, but again, like, like an overture, yeah. you know, like you hear yeah. an overture at the beginning of a symphony or something, you know, it's, it, it, it's previewing the mood no of question. what is going to be commenting. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I really think Kid A is that album. I think there's other albums that you could talk about in terms of, you know, like what's the most influential album or what's the most popular album. And yeah. I don't think Kid A is, is, is any of those, but like yeah. for me personally, I just feel like Kid A is like, the most emblematic album of the last 20 years, yep. you know, like I, I, you put it on and I feel like it kind of captures something that is this sort of ineffable feeling that's in the air. Like when yeah. you think about the, you know, the, this very tumultuous period, you know, the, it's not even a period. I mean, we're talking about two decades, but I mean, it's been a pretty <laughs> insane two decades. Yeah, I mean, I you even around the time you connected it really well with the, you know, some of the other media and art at the time, you know, Fight Club was about Matrix and Vanilla Sky, uh, you know, as far as cinema, there was just, it all just, it all makes sense that that was going on around that time. And you're right, it is like kind of the, the soundtrack to uh, that uncertainty that the, all these changes. Um, you describe a meltdown, well, actually, two, two meltdowns that, um, that took place in 1997. Uh, that was at shows, Radiohead shows in Birmingham, England. That um, that sent Tom, I would say, on a journey towards Kid A. Uh, what what went down with Tom that day, and how did it how did it lead to Kid A? Yeah, so like in the, I think it's in the first chapter I talk yeah, about early. how, and, and and Tom York has talked about this, mm-hmm. where there was this show that they were playing in Birmingham, and it was in the middle of the OK Computer tour, and you know, and of course, OK Computer was this huge breakthrough record for Radiohead where like on their first two records they were well first they were this one hit wonder with Creep on Pablo Honey and then that really hung over them for a really long time I think longer than like we now give it credit for like I I actually write quite a bit about Pablo Honey in the book because I think in a way Kid A was like the final step in them 
putting that to bed. Yeah. You know, because even when you read, you know, you look at OK Computer, that was such a landmark record. But even like in reviews of that record, if you look at the lead of like the reviews in Rolling Stone or Spin, like they're still talking about Creep. You know, yep. they're still talking about Radiohead, like getting past this song. And, um, you know, I think if you look at Radiohead in the 90s, they were this hard touring band. They played, you know, I think something like 700 shows between 1992 and 98. Yeah, like there was, was one year, year you pointed out it was like almost 200 shows in a year. That was That's yeah, insane. Th- yeah, I think it was like, like the Benz in particular. Yeah. They were touring a lot. I think it was like maybe 95 or 96. Yep. They played 180 shows. So yeah, it was like yep. pretty much a show every other day. Nuts. And, you know, they were this ambitious band. They wanted to be... Uh, successful they wanted to be like one of these huge bands but then with okay computer they could see that that was actually coming true and and tom york who you know he talks about seeing brian may of queen on on the television when he was a kid and like wanting to be like that and now he was like that and he found that he couldn't really appreciate it and he found it really suffocating so yeah the there's this anecdote he tells about before this concert in birmingham how he basically like tried to leave the show like before it started like and he and this is so funny by the way it's so yeah funny. and like like he just wanted to get out of there and yeah. um the first problem was that he couldn't like find the exit like literally out <laughs> of this arena so he's like wandering around the arena trying to figure out like how to get out and then he finally gets out of the arena and then he hops aboard you know like a subway train and he gets on the train and he realizes like he's on he's he's on a train in the vicinity of a Radiohead show. Yeah. So like most of the people on the train okay. are going to the show. <laughs> so they recognize him and you know it just becomes this thing where it's like you know it's almost like like if you wrote this as a novel it would almost seem too on the nose as yeah, a metaphor. Totally. But it's like he literally can't escape his stardom, you know, that that's the idea. So anyway, they play the show and then afterward, you know, they're they're in the dressing room after the after the concert, and of course, you know, people love it. They're you know, play this encore, and you know, the crowd goes goes crazy, and you know, they're in the dressing room after the show, and the band is celebrating, and, and Tom is just there, like catatonic, like he can't even speak, and like you know, they're trying to like the other guys in the band are trying to engage with him, and and it's almost like a mini nervous breakdown that he has, and. That ends up being the foreshadowing of what happens once Radiohead finally gets off the road in mid-1998. The OK Computer Tour ends, and now the time has come to, you know, know, he's trying to write songs uh, for the next Radiohead record, and he goes to this incredible, uh, you know, block, writer's block, because he doesn't really want to do what they already did yeah but he doesn't know what to do next and it really was an incredible time for radiohead because radiohead became its own genre by like 98 or so you know 98 99 where you had bands like travis and then of course coldplay being the, the you know the huge example the one that took off yeah yeah of of you know all, but all these british bands that were working in a style that I think was derived mainly from like those big ballads from the Benz, but like also, you know, Karma Police and Let Down, like those big uplifting guitar based or, or piano based ballads that build to these like just swells of emotion at yeah. the end of the song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have in the case of Travis, for instance, 
I don't know if, if people even remember Travis these days, but they put out a record in 99 called The Man Who, which is actually like a pretty good pop record. And like Nigel Godrich like produced that. And he, you know, basically brought in to like help them replicate those like gorgeous guitar tones from OK Computer, like the mix of like acoustic and electric guitar tones that I think is a big part of the majesty of those albums, like the yeah. Benz and OK Computer, oh, yeah. just like how beautiful the guitar sound. And, um, you know, Tom York was like, well, what, what are we going to do? I mean, like all these other bands are playing this now, like, we, you know, like, and I, and I hate this sound now. So that ends up paving the way. Yeah, uh, for what to they a, ended up doing to a, to a new sound exactly, which is which is I mean I guess he was you mentioned how he was sick of uh, melody at this point and you know looking for rhythm you know he decided that guitar based rock was dead and it was, I found it really really fascinating that he you know he kind of upped his uh, electronic music game where he kind of grabbed the whole catalog of Warped Records you know Aphex Twin and um, Boards of Canada and such and just kind of like dove into that world and so I, I guess you know. It it all goes back to creep in a lot of ways because he's this is I mean seems like a a a, a full backlash uh, kind of a redefining of sound and th- when they came out of it they were in a different place and you know you describe it as um you know now they were post rock and they weren't you know they they weren't strictly after Kid A they weren't strictly one of those '90s bands and so they they did emerge from this album as something else. Yeah, and you know, you know, one thing I tried to put across in the book is that you know, like when people talk about Radiohead now, particularly people who don't like Radiohead, there's this idea that they're this like esoteric band that's really hard to understand. You know, like you, you have to, you know, have a PhD to understand Radiohead or something. I mean, that that's something that gets brought up all the time. It's the knock, uh, absolutely, w- with Radiohead. But really, if you listen to like those first three records, I mean they're pretty straight ahead guitar yep. rock, yep. you know? And I, I think that the strength and maybe some people would say the weakness, I don't think it's the weakness, but uh, you know, the, the criticism that you could make of those records is that they, they almost like beat you over the head with like how emotional they are and like how epic and grand. And, yep. um, and again, I love that about those records. I mean, oh, personally, yeah. oh, like yeah. my favorite Radiohead album is okay. Computer. I mean, just because of like when that came out when I was 19 it's definitely like a ha- it's it's one of the handful of albums that I feel like felt like a masterpiece like the first time I heard it. You yeah. know, like like one of those Agreed. and it was all it was also like the time of my life though that I heard it too. Like that, that had a lot to do with it. I was a little bit older when I heard Kid A and I'd I'd already had my mind blown, you know, by music that, many times. That, it was it's it wasn't going to be the same. To, uh, Twenty-two, I think, sweet right. spot right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right right, same I, age too. Yeah. And I had just turned 23 when Kid A came Get out. It, yeah. I had just start, started my first job. Um, but yeah, like if you listen to those early Radiohead records, yeah, there, there's nothing really that sophisticated about yeah. them. They're they're very just direct, emotional, beautiful rock music. And it's really like with Kid A, when they begin to, I think, you know, earn that image, I guess, of being more esoteric. Although, again, I think with Kid A... Like it's not as like sort of anti-rock or like anti sort of emotion 
as people want to pretend or even that like Radiohead wanted to pretend. I, I still yeah. feel like especially when you a, listen back, it's, it's almost exactly. like, and I use, you said it perfectly. It almost sounds like classic rock at this point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think ultimately, you know, and I talk about this in the book that like Radiohead in a way was working off a playbook that other rock bands um, had followed in their career, like where they have this precedent of making very sort of populist rock music. And then they, do the grand sort of electronic reinvention, you know, like yep. where they go yeah. in a more sort of like artistic, um, electronic, you know, uh, creative direction. I think that really begins like with David Bowie, you know, yeah. going from sort of the glam and Philly soul music that he was making in the early seventies into the Berlin trilogy. You have the talking heads did something similar. Like when they were started going into like the more remain in light, not so much electronic, but like definitely um, a little actually more groove based and like, and less sort of like, you know, like they had just had a hit with take me to the river. Mm -hmm. And, and after that, like going into fear of music and then into remain in light, they were definitely sort of deconstructing what songs were. U2 is like another very obvious example, like going into Octune Baby. And I actually, you know, I write quite a bit about U2, just um, comparing and, and contrasting U2 and Radiohead, because I think, you know, there is a similarity between what Radiohead did on Kid A and Amnesiac and what U2 did on Octune Baby and Zuropa. You know, and that's one thing yep. I write about in the book. But the difference is that U2 eventually cycled back to essentially their Joshua Tree guys on All That You Can't Leave Behind, which is an album that came out the same month as Kid A, you know, and uh, in a way was prescient in its own way, you know, All That You Can't Leave Behind. Like, they're on the cover dressed in black. They're in an airport. You know, that album ended up being a big 9-11 record after 9-11. In the same way that Kid A was. Kid A was also a big 9-11 record. And it's a it's it's a record that in a way became sort of retconned as a commentary on 9/11, even though obviously it came out before. Um, so, yeah, that idea again of like, you know, we've made our big rock record now. Now we're going to do the intellectual exercise, you know, the yeah. the the, like the record that's going to alienate our fans. <laughs> um, you know that that's a well entrenched trope. And like after yep. today, of course there were bands that were doing it because of Kid A, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, to me, like, Cold, go back to the Coldplay example. I mean, Coldplay, unlike Radiohead, like, Coldplay actually worked with Brian Eno in the same mm. way that Bowie, Talking Heads, and U2 did. It's interesting that Radiohead never did. Um, you know, I guess that's the difference between them and Coldplay is that they're not as, like, slavishly imitating their heroes the way that Coldplay does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how Kid A kind of fits in that lineage of, of rock bands experimenting. Absolutely. It, uh, it, it definitely fits in that mold. Um, I want to take one quick step back because, uh, and ask a question about you because I'm not sure all our listeners, uh, kind of know where you come from, but, uh, in This Isn't Happening, you share a review of Pablo Honey. You wrote from your hometown newspaper in 1993, which is great. It's, uh. I guess you had to be around 15 or so, but I'm curious, have you, um, with, when I was thinking about that, have you always, um, you know, when did you start writing about music and, and did you always want to be a music writer? 
Yeah, so like I, my my first reviews I ever published were when I was fourteen. I wrote for my junior high paper in eighth grade. I reviewed Automatic for the People and by REM and Dirt by Alice in Chains. Those were the first two albums I ever reviewed. So I was like ninety two, the fall yep. of ninety two. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty sure that like around that time I had decided that I was I wanted to be a music writer even yep. though i didn't really know like how a person goes about doing what, that what that meant yeah or or i mean i think i knew what it meant because I, I, okay. I was reading a lot of music criticism already and okay. i had a, a grasp of what it was and i think like my reviews from the beginning like even that pablo honey review which is like obviously written by a teenager but <laughs> at the same time like i definitely had a grasp of like music review language already no doubt. Like i was Absolutely. i was using i was using like the cliches of yep. <laughs> music writing already so i was pretty familiar with what yep. music writing was i think i just mean like I, you know, I didn't know how you become a music writer I, I, I how do you get that job like how do you yeah you know, i mean i didn't really know anyone that even worked in media and you know i get obviously this is like pre-internet pre-social media and it was uh, it was really hard to know um, how to do that if you if you didn't know people that were doing it, and yeah. and I think that was true for a long time. Like when I got started, um, you know, my first job was working for that same hometown paper mm-hmm. that I wrote that kid a that uh, Pablo Honey review for, because that's the only place that would hire me at the time, because I had interned there in college too, and. You know, I don't know if I even had ambitions to like write for Rolling Stone or Spin, just because it just seemed like it was a whole other planet. Yep. You know, um, so big. Like if you, uh, yeah, because if you didn't live in New York and you didn't um, go to like an East Coast school and you didn't know people that were editors there, it was kind of impossible to get a job. And um, I owe like my career, like I owe a lot of my career to social media. Um, I think if that didn't exist, I would have had a much harder time. I, I mean, I wouldn't be able to live where I live. I, you know, I live in Minnesota. I've lived in the Upper Wood Midwest my whole life. Um, you know, it was it was such an exclusive world in a lot of ways, yeah. and I think that's changed a lot um, for the better because of social media. I think I agree. because um, you know, I I really. I mean, it's harder in that there's so many more people doing it now. So it's more competitive. And obviously, there's all these sort of weird economic forces going on in media that can make it a challenge. But Mm -hmm. I do think in terms of just getting exposure, that if you're good at what you do and you're persistent, that you will make it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I don't know if that was true, like, when I got started. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a way, there's an yeah. inroad that's th- that does exist that wasn't there before, and if you are yeah. good, yeah, people can't find you. And you're absolutely right that uh, the when you said ninety three you was uh, really adorable. I love that <laughs> review of Pablo, honey. That's great. Yeah. Um, so uh, this, I guess, I'm gonna kind of lean towards process a little bit because there's a lot of mentions and nods that um you had to kind of put into this book to kind of put Kid A into proper context from Eno and, and Berlin Trilogy to Remain in the Light, things we've already touched on, to No Logo and, and behind Beyond. But um, I guess my question here is, uh, is like, uh, you know, how did you, uh, you know, go about connecting all these dots to find a way to really define this really, you know, complex album that came 
came to being at a really fascinating time. It, it's you know it's a pretty challenging thing you took on and kind of nailed it. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean that's the that's my favorite thing about writing a book like this and the other books I've I've read is like mm-hmm. taking different elements and finding the connections between them and you know and if you're a critic I mean that's what that's your that's what your job is and yeah. and hopefully you're doing it in a way that isn't contrived where the reader goes okay you're totally stretching here this doesn't make any sense like you want it to make sense to the reader but you also want it to be surprising you know you want sure. them to feel like oh I hadn't thought about that before it's, that's an interesting way of looking at it and yep. always with the idea of you know you, I mean the people that buy this book I, I'm sure that they've heard kid a before and they've probably heard it many times and they might have an idea in their own minds of like what this album means you know my hope is that people will read this book and they'll find things in it that maybe they've thought themselves but they couldn't maybe quite articulate and they read it in the book and it's like oh yeah like i i know where he's coming from and then i'll hopefully other they'll find things that hadn't occurred to them or that they didn't know and then uh it'll help them you know, give them another layer of appreciation for this album that they already love. Yeah. Um, I always, I always feel good like for the me, role. For sure. Oh, that's great. I, that's yeah. that's good to hear. I mean, I always yep. feel like the role of the critic, especially now, is to give the reader and the listener another way to hear the record. You know, because there used to be this idea that like people would read music criticism because they want to know if a record's any good because they don't have a way to hear it themselves before buying it. Whereas now, obviously, you know, we can hear everything. If you want to hear an album, you don't necessarily need me to tell you if it's any good. You can listen to it to yourself and you can decide on your own. But I think the reason why people read me or read any other critic is that they've heard the album, but now they want to, they want to hear it through this person's ears. You know, they, you know, they they want to hear it the way this person hears it because they just think this person's interesting. And also like, I love this album so much that I want to like re-experience it, you know, yeah. through this person's perspective. And it's kind of like a fun thing to do. I know like for me, like the critics I love to read, I d- do that for me. Like, I, you know, it's like if I read someone on Bob Dylan, who I love, I've listened to Bob Dylan more than anybody, but there's certain writers that I could read them and I'll be like, wow, this Bob Dylan song I've heard a hundred times. Like, I feel like I'm hearing it in a new way because yeah. of how they're talking about it. So in terms of like connecting the dots, I feel like, that really just comes from immersing yourself in as much material mm-hmm. about the album and about that era as you can and and keeping the antenna up and and kind of keeping an open mind like as you're sort of writing the book in your head and 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 kind of coming up with ideas and and um i mean that's where the creativity comes in you know with a book like this i think so this is sort of like a long answer to your question, but, um, and, and I mean, part of it too is also that, you know, unlike some of my other books, like I wrote a book called Twilight of the Gods, which was yeah, about great. classic rock history. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, like I wasn't alive in the 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. So like my, um, my understanding of Led Zeppelin is a little bit different than someone who was alive when those albums were new. Like I was writing about it very consciously in that book as a person who came to it later and attached a certain mythical significance to those albums yeah. because I wasn't alive when they came out. Yep. Radiohead is different because, you know, Radiohead is one of those bands that like I have followed from the beginning of their career. Like mm-hmm. I loved Creep the first time I heard it. It came out um I guess I would have been, you know, about 15 or so 
and you know i bought the record and i bought all their other albums as they came out and it was really interesting to write about a band like that um because it does give you a different perspective not just because you remember how you reacted in the moment but then you see how your feelings can change over time you know how things evolve and i think the book reflects that as well and kind of going back to that idea i was saying before about how an album or any work of art you know it doesn't just live in the year that it came out you know it, it, it continues to live after it came out and it also you know it changes how you think of the older records you know like I loved Pablo Honey when it came out. I I thought this was an amazing Radiohead record. But like as they put out subsequent albums, I liked Pablo Honey less because now there was the Benz and now there was OK Computer and 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 Kid A and it changed how I thought of that first record. Um, I love how you then you force yourself in, in in the book it's really great you're you you allow yourself to listen to it through that those what sixteen year old ears or fifteen year right. old ears, you know. That's yeah. I like that. I, it's funny because why you bring know, the this, baggage that that of uh, the new knowledge, you know? Why ruin it? Right, right. Well, it, it's funny because you know this is a book about Kid A, but like I did write. I feel like I wrote quite a bit about Pablo Honey, and there's like a and, pretty and in rainbows. It's a there's a full breakdown. Yeah, in rainbows is great. Yeah. When I think in rainbows is a, is obviously a, a critical record in their career and you know i think it was interesting to me because that was an album that in ways was even more tortured during the creation than kid a was i mean kid a was was this famously protracted process i mean it took them you know about it you know i mean it's about two years of them working on that record and kid a was I'm, i'm sorry and rainbows was the same thing but like the the record that, that that came out of those situations, those those records are totally different. I mean, in Rainbows to me, is like like the warmest album Radiohead's ever made, and it, yeah, sure. and it sounds like so. There's so much space on that album, and it sounds like so unfussy, you know. And yeah. it, it, it it's amazing that it took them so long um, to do that. But I think, you know, there's. The, if there's an ongoing theme in this book, it's about Radiohead's sort of personality crisis, you know, that is ongoing throughout their career. Um, as great as they are and as respected as they are, it's amazing to me, like, how insecure this band is in a lot yeah. of ways and, like, how that ends up complicating the creation process for them a lot of the time. Um, because, yeah, in Rainbows was so difficult and... Um, you know, that coincides with Tom York making The Eraser, which in some ways feels like a sequel to Kid A, or maybe even like a culmination of that album in, in some ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, there's so many fascinating things to talk about with this band. But, yeah, and this book really gets into everything. I, I, I really try to, like, kind of put across to people that, even if Kid A isn't your favorite Radiohead album, if you like Radiohead, I think there's like a lot of other things in this book. Uh, it's, I mean, it's you can you almost know. look at it as a history of the band. I mean, it's it is yeah. it does focus in on Kid A, but it's I mean, it's all over the place from from their early days, him in college, all the way through to upwards to now. It's it's, it's I agree with you. It's you don't have to just love Kid A, but if you do enjoy Radiohead or music in general, uh, yeah. it's there for you. Um, I do want to bring this up because this is. 
this is something I, I, I always can't get my head around. It's kind of hard for me to sometimes face the, the reality that so much of what I believed, um, lyrically speaking, um, that Kid A was about, you know, whether I thought it was about climate change or consumerism or, um, you know, narcissism or what technology is doing to humanity, you know, with disconnecting us. But that wasn't really the aim or what Tom was talking about. That's the case, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, well, well, yeah, I think, uh, you know, to again kind of go to the creep example, you know, I think I think there was this impulse in Tom York to not be obvious. And I think that he came to be embarrassed by creep because that is such a, you know, it's such a literal song. You know, like you hear that the first time and there's no mistaking like what that song is about. And I think as a lyricist, that's just something that he tends to back away from a little bit. And, and that, that feeling, it seems like, was probably compounded during the tour for OK Computer just because there was so much media attention on Radiohead and, you know, there's so many interviews and having to explain what songs were about. Because even, like, you know, OK Computer, I think, is, you know, more direct lyrically than, you know, Kid A is certainly – and, you know, along with not wanting to be so obvious musically, you know, I think he was really conscious about not being too obvious lyrically and constructing songs that really don't have like any literal meaning. They're more about how his words sound and like if you can pick out words, just the sort of mental images that, that stray lines put into yeah. your head, you know. Really, um, you do you do dig into too, which is really fascinating. You know how we interpret music, yeah. and how we read into things. There was there was this one line, and he was he was not talking about Kid A in, in this instance. He was talking about in ra- rainbows, but it's uh, he said the political stuff is only there because of the lyrics, and the lyrics are only there because of what came out. Which I think I could almost imagine <laughs> right. like Aldous Huxley um, saying that. Oh yeah, it's, just, it's a really absurd thing to say, you know. Well, and like, you know, and it's interesting because I talk about this too, like when they put out Hail to the Thief, like there was this big media narrative about how like this was their anti-George Bush record and this was like their very political, you know, sort of statement. And like Tom York repeatedly in interviews dispelled that, you know, like he would say that he doesn't really want to be involved in politics and, you know, this is something that he's wanted to avoid. I mean, he would talk about, you know, he's talked about politics as an activist, you know, appearing at rallies and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think and I think the thing with Kid A that you're talking about, the sort of anti-consumerism, the you know, you know, global warming, all that kind of stuff. You know, I think people projected that because of of what they were saying in interviews and like what they had said leading up to the album. You know, you mentioned No Logo, uh, the Naomi Klein book. Uh being you know and there was this idea that you know maybe they were going to call the album no logo at some point um and i I mean i think it's important to to say that if you hear that stuff in the album it doesn't mean it's not there you know i i I am a believer in the idea that like what listeners believe like if, if enough listeners believe a song is about something then the song is about that thing you know because it it animates an idea about a work of art that becomes real, you know, and it, 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 it takes on that importance because people give it that importance. 
even if the artist didn't intend it, you know, and that's one of the great things about art is that there are things in art that artists don't put in there that we put in there. And just because the artist didn't put it there doesn't mean it's not there. Like if we think it's there, we're listeners, we're part of that process. And, you know, so, but in terms of like intentionality, you know, yeah, I don't think they were trying to do that. In fact, I think there was sort of like an opposite idea of like wanting to not have that in there. Um, maybe because uh, again, having so much sort of imposed on them on previous albums by the media and not wanting to have to deal with that. And I'm sure part of it too, is also just that old idea that like all songwriters talk about how, you know, I don't want to explain my songs because once I explain it, the listener can't that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The listener can't, you know, put meaning on it for themselves. I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I feel like the significance, the significance of Kid A is not any sort of literal meaning. It's more about the form of the album. Like, I feel like a lot of the lyrics, you listen to these songs and it feels like scrolling through a social media feed, you know, like where you have a lot of statements that are disconnected, you know, you're sort of entering conversations in the middle and you don't really know what they're talking about. And it's just this jumble of data coming at you constantly, which in 2000 was disorienting. But I think now like we're so used to that, that that feels normal. And what people do in those instances is they don't throw up their hands and say, I don't get it. They make up their own meanings of what things mean, even if they're not getting all the information, like they think they know enough to draw conclusions. And, you know, that's the world that we live in now. And obviously there are disastrous effects to that because a lot of times we don't know what we're talking about, but we think yeah. we do because we see. Yeah. For, stri- for example, know. as you bring it up, the uh, Fight Club, the, the meaning that people have um, used for Fight Club, some far right groups and Nazi groups have kind of used it as a uh, as a rallying cry. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I bring up Fight Club because there was a there was a, a, direct a window. Link, a literal, I couldn't believe that. Well, there's a window of time where Tom York was going to do the score. Yeah. To that movie or like um, Ed Norton and Brad Pitt wanted him to do the score. And this was like right after OK Computer. It was basically during the period when he was trying to write songs for, for Kid A and Amnesiac. And he said no, of course. And um, also like there was this thing Ed Norton's talked about how during the making of Fight Club, they were listening to OK Computer on a loop yeah. like him and Brad yep. Pitt. Like that was a big influence for him. Um but, yeah, I was just writing in the book about, like, how, you know, there are some, you know, the, the difference between, like, a film like Fight Club and an album like Kid A is that Fight Club is much more literal. You know, kind of going back to that lyrical idea, like, that what Tyler Durden, you know, those monologues that he's giving, like, under the guise of Ed Norton, um, are, you know, these, these sort of anti-consumerist screeds that go in the movie. Yeah, it's and pointed. and there's nothing like that on Kid A. Like, there's nothing yeah. as literal as that. Um, but even like, yeah, as literal as that movie is, there are lots of people that misinterpret it as this sort yeah. of fascist movie that it's a that you know they miss the satire of it and they just look exactly. at it as this sort of literal movie. And it does really kind of show the the limitations in a way of like literal storytelling versus something that's more sort of um, you know what's the word not what more figurative or like more yeah. sort of like impressionistic mm-hmm. you know like uh you know it's so funny to me that music 
you can get away with things in a song that you could never get away with in a in a film or a television show. Like yeah. when we watch films, at least mainstream films, like we expect there to be a plot that makes sense and we we want to connect the dots from A to B to C. Whereas like songs never do that, you know, and it's even hugely popular songs are um, are way more disjointed than we would ever allow film to be. And it's one of the things that makes music so magical and what allows it to engage with us on sort of a a level beyond sort of the intellectual mind. You know, it engages with the subconscious in a way that I think other forms of art try to and sometimes succeed in. But I don't think they don't do it as casually as music does. Like you turn on a song and it affects you in ways that you have to intellectualize, you intellectualize it later. But like in the moment you either like it or you don't, or it makes you dance or it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like you, you feel something in your stomach that tells you that you like it. Um, so that's an incredible thing yeah, about yeah, music. You're right. And, Absolutely. And it, you don't, you don't have to go through thought processes. It actually hits you in a, in a visceral and uh, you know, feelings right away. Yeah. And I, th- and I think with an album like kid a, that's why, you know, even if the lyrics aren't literally about the things we were talking about, anti-consumerism, you know, technology, proliferation, you know, global warming, whatever, it gives you the feeling that those things give you, you know, it, yeah. it, it communicates to you in a level that's beyond words. It's about um, creating a sense of anxiety, dread, whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah, again, it's, it's foreboding. Yeah, it's foreboding. It's foreboding. It's it's channeling the the anxiety of kind of that that the the turn of the century and the uncertainty. It's really it's it works on level. We have to, since we are talking about that period of time, uh, and we haven't yet. We have to talk about the internet some because the internet comes up a whole lot, um, and you know because it was a much different place then than now. And I'm I'm glad you dug into that because you know you just you get caught up and forget that 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 what it was it was you know kind of exciting and positive and whole different place i was wondering if you could speak on a little bit how the internet in and around the time of the release of kid a was so unique and kind of what that meant to fans and to the industry i thought that was a really you know kind of fun part to a fun thing you were talking about in the book yeah i mean i think that you know one of the narratives around kid a is that it's this album about the internet and about how evil the internet is or how scary you know that that world is which i think is i think there's validity to that as we're as we were talking about but i think that's more of like a retrospective thing i think that's something that we put on it now because i think in 2000 you know the internet was like it was exciting you know it was it was it was this place that you went to to meet other people like you and that were into what you were into and I mean, I, I think I say this in the book, but, you know, there's this line I heard someone say once where, you know, they said that the Internet used to be a place that you would escape to. And now it's a place that you escape from, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I really think that was true in, in, in 2000. And I think with with Radiohead specifically, I mean, they were among the bands that had, you know, a very healthy online following, like, like relatively early on. There were a lot of Radiohead fan sites that were starting message up in the late boards. 90s, message boards. And there was, um, and Radiohead engaged with that as they were getting ready to put out Kid A. This, this was among the first albums that, like first major albums that you could stream online. And they had this 
special widget essentially is called an eye blip where the record company capital records they made it available to anyone that if you wanted to post this on your on your blog you know people could stream the album and um you know it wasn't like an online it, it wasn't like an exclusive to like rolling stone or something yeah um so you so know cool. so that was you know again like such a novel thing in 2000 yeah. that you could hear an album before it came out you know this was the beginning of napster obviously people were starting to pirate music even though like it was still like not necessarily conducive to a lot of people because if you didn't have like a good uh internet connection which most people didn't i mean you know you're doing you you're using dial-up then so things just took a long time to download and like leaks yeah, a couple were, hours for a song it was wild right and like leaks weren't really a big thing yet i mean they were they were we were like a couple years away from that where albums were actually leaking online and and kid a leaked because of these um streams that were put up so that was an album that leaked um but yeah it was it was yeah you could go online you could like you know you could go to like a radiohead exclusive website you could go just read news about this one band that you loved you could go on message boards and you could find out how to get bootlegs of their like summer tour because they did a summer tour where they played a lot of these songs before um the album came out yeah and um and then eventually you know you could go and read reviews of the album and i read quite a bit about pitchfork in the book because kid a was maybe the single most important review in the early days of pitchfork in terms of just bringing readers to the site um and that review is pretty infamous, you know, because it was written in this very sort of flowery, purpley language um, that was utterly unlike anything you'd read in Rolling Stone or Spin or any of the major music magazines. And, um, yeah, it was exciting. Again, like, if you're a music yeah. fan, it's like, you know, we're so used to this now of, like, you know, having instant access to everything and, like, and just and having, like, a million opinions screamed at you about everything like all the time um but back then i mean that was unique that was a really novel Absolutely. thing and um yeah so yeah a so it's fan i was i was that's how i was getting my tapes contacting people through message boards and you know getting set lists and a similar similar thing similar fan base you know rabbit fan base that really wanted the information and wanted to find people you know maybe you'd be the only Radiohead or Fish fan in your town, and, and you, you would find that community uh, through the internet, and that was exciting. It was hopeful, and <laughs> it's it definitely could be looked at as a as a happier place in some ways. Um, one of a this is kind of to bring it home a little bit. One of the fun aspects of the book is that it it, it seems like it often acts as kind of um, a personal exploration of your Radiohead fandom, um, a band that you've, you know, has lived with, y with you and within you in a major way for decades now. And I'm wondering, you know, what did you learn about yourself and about your relationship to Radiohead um, by writing this? Did, did this, um, you know, was, was, what did it do to you? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, I think, um, I don't know if I like learned anything. I mean, nothing's coming to mind in that regard, but it was being reminded of things and it was, um, spending periods of my spending time in different periods of my life. And like, I, I hadn't really thought about the year 2000 all that much before writing this or, um, or the year 1993 or 1997, you know, it, just, just kind of walking through different 
parts of my life and um and and seeing how radiohead was there and you know i know that sometimes people like when they read music books they don't like want that sort of first person uh, aspect to it at least i'm basing that on, on goodreads reviews because i read goodreads reviews sometimes people complain about that sort of thing but i, I always feel like you know when I write about myself in a book, my hope is that, you know, the things I'm writing about specifically are things that will be relatable to other people. You know, that like in some way I feel like, you know, watching the election results in 2000, the, the Bush v. Gore election yep. and, and, and listening to Kid A, I feel like that's maybe something that a lot of people did, you know, or oh, just, yeah. or just, um, just the experience of like the early 2000s in general, which I feel like, you know, I'm old enough now where I have more historical perspective, you know, than I did obviously as a younger person. And it's, it's one of the interesting things about growing up is seeing what people forget. And, you know, when people talk about these last few years being crazy, which they are, I do want to remind them that like, you know, the early to the early aughts were a pretty terrible time. And there were some terrible things. There were a lot of terrible things that happened then. And I feel like maybe people forget like how insane the Bush v. Gore election was and how, you know, obviously nine 11 and then to enter into two wars simultaneously under pretenses that we subsequently learned were either wrong or or a lie, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, And just how insane that is. And like how, you know, one of the stories I think of the last two decades is this, um, is the sense that like there is no real truth or there's no real reality anymore. Um, That if, that it's so easy now to create your own reality, Um, which I feel like, Again, I don't think that's literally discussed on Kid A, but I feel like that is something that is in that record. Because, again, I think there's something about that record that just how disjointed it is lyrically and like how it, it, it presents itself and how it unfolds, it really replicates the feeling of like not knowing where up or down is and having to figure it out on your own and having the faith that you're right. Um which is a very misguided faith sometimes, you know, like, cause a lot of times we're not right. And, but we think we are, and, and there's like this conviction that we have that we're right about our own point of view. And, you know, sometimes we need to maybe step back and question that a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think Radiohead was doing that on this Yeah, You record. mentioned at one point um, that Radiohead ultimately made it impossible to buy into the idea that rock music is a, as a means to salvation. Which is right. kind of a hard truth to swallow for, for people who, you know, that's where we find our happiness and, and, you know, what it means so much to us. But, yeah, there's a hopelessness there yeah. that's, that, that, that resonates throughout the album. You know, I think it's, I've always thought, you know, and I, I write about albums um, a bunch as well. And I always, uh, 20 years seems to be a nice sweet spot to look back at an album. You get, you know, a, a good span of time in between you get to see what the you know band has done since then and you know a couple decades always really gives uh and the author gets that time to um you know grow and experience the world and see see what see how the album does out there and you really do you get to experience it that way this it's a great book man it's really it's you uh there's a line where you're talking about it's one of those albums that 
uh, is permanently lodged in your brain where it just spins. That is most definitely the case with me. So it, it really, it, it affected me personally. And it just, it's just, the writing's great too. I really, um, I, <laughs> there's, there's, uh, you, you described um, the album. Actually, I want to mention this. I love how you described uh, Untitled, how it sounds like coming down from mushrooms at, uh, from mushrooms at dawn, <laughs> which is really, really funny. But um, yeah, and also the album as a doom-laden uh, overture for our modern times. It's just so well-written and so, uh, so well done. So bravo. Really, really great. And great to talk to you about it. I'm glad you came on. This is really great. Well, thank you, Michael. And I appreciate you reading the book and, and enjoying it. And uh, yeah, I appreciate all the thoughtful questions. This one just came out. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.